You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I had to follow up a song from Queen with a song from the King. You look like an angel, walk like an angel, talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are, devil in mm-hmm. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. A proud member of the Demonza Core family of podcasts. Yep, I'm officially a Demonza Core podcast, and hopefully you're all catching in on the new twotruefreaks.com website. Thank you for listening. My name is Sean Ingle, and today, as usual, we're going to be covering two, count them, two great episodes issue sodes of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. Green Lantern being another part of the Underworld Unleashed storyline where we get to see a relationship with Donna Troy kind of go on the ropes. You can kind of see where Kyle is a bit distracted by some other denizens of his apartments. And no, I'm not talking about the lesbian characters in there. The model. Yeah. Speaking of models, there's also a model on the cover and inside the Guy Gardner book. And for some reason, she's got a strange sway over a lot of the people she encounters. But you also get Tiger Man fighting giant mutated crocodiles and... uh, Aresia in her hooker gem outfit. Yep, I know you were all looking forward to it. But we'll get to that and more, especially your emails, after I take this break and plug a couple of promos for some podcasts that I know you'll love. So, after we get back from the break, we'll take a look at Green Lantern number 69. 69, dudes! You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are. Devil in disguise. You are. Devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Let's hear it for Captain America! It's the Dying Man! It's the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. (laughs) Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. 
our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands. Of Doctor Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four is no more and the Phantom is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men. And Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or Hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. But it shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast, ffcast.libsyn.com. And we're back. And as usual, it's time of the show where I take a look at what you listeners have done to voice your opinions on the state of the show. In other words, listener email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and to try to play a little catch up, we're going to do a couple of emails from one of my favorite listeners, Mr. Scott Davis. Scott's first email is called Guy Gardner, number 9 through 14, and he writes in, Hi, Sean. I was able to catch up on some of the Guy Gardner issues last week, the new writers being Will Jacobs, issues 9 and 10, and Chuck Dixon, Dixon issues 11 through 14, do an amazing job, and Joe Staten is hitting it out of the park. I'll agree with you on the Chuck Dixon and Joe Staten one. The Will Jacobs stories, eh, they were all right. They were kind of a transitionary thing, and I think uh, Will Jacobs was a friend of George Jones, so that's how he kind of got the job. Not bad stories, but not the greatest either. But he continues on saying a few of my notes. Guy Gardner number nine. I found it strange that Guy was trying to make jokes in front of the dead Helen Trodna laugh that Buck 50 was carrying, saying, at least you could have done was teleport my beer along. Come on, Guy, we've got a dead alien here. There's no time for beer. Nope. Sorry, Scott, there's there's always time for beer. And speaking of beer, Scott replies, I find it odd that Guy wasn't drinking American beer and that he had an Australian wombat lager in his hand. I thought Americans took a lot of pride in their national beer. Eh. No, because our beer is kind of like drinking cow urine, but that's just my opinion. Scott continues, I'm very privileged in Canada with all of my delicious Canadian beer. I agree with you there. Sean, let me know if you need to know if you ever need to stuff a mouse in a beer bottle so you can get a new case of beer from the Elsinore Brewery. Uh, if I ever need some Elsinore beer, I will definitely contact you for uh, some mouses to stuff in the bottle. I've got it nailed, he says. I also found that Kai probably contributed to the death of Nocturne. He punches and knees Nocturne in the head, which forces him into unconsciousness, and then very soon after, the Nocturne is lazy to death on the ground by the alien army. 
Oops. Uh, yeah, he may have something there. Guys should own up to that one. Fun issue, though. Sky Garden number 10. Scott continues. This issue explains the Ophidians are trying to destroy our life to ensure they're not interrupted again on their quest for reunion with their godhood. This sounds awesome, and I agree the story should have been explored further. Wow, Ludica sounds like a crazy feminist on page 14. Gardner, I don't like you. I don't trust you, and what, and, and worse, you're a man. I thought the ending was terrible, about how the Ophidians just blew up all of a sudden. There was too much potential for these aliens. I agree there's a great character development that Guy at the end when he realizes he proved himself, to, he's proved something to himself, and he's better as a follower, a soldier, a guy in the trenches. Great stuff. Yeah, I remember this issue. Uh, the Ophidians were a much underused race. As for a weird alien race that can take over people's minds and can't be seen unless you know what you're looking for, they're kind of like the silence from the uh, beginning of my, what, like season six of Doctor Who, the weird ones that when you weren't looking at them, you forgot who they were. So I thought that was kind of a neat character there, but they just went nowhere, sadly. Continuing on with Scott's email, we've got Guy Gardner 11 through 14, Yesterday's Sins. Wow, you nailed it. This story arc is amazing and definitely one of the best Guy Gardner stories I've ever read. I can't agree with you more. Chuck Dixon and Joe Staten do a great job on this. I really don't have any specific notes for these issues, but I do have to admit I enjoyed every page of these four issues. The flashback scenes were amazing, and it's hard not to have a tear in your eye when you get to the end of part four, where Mace can commit suicide. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on why you like this story so much and how it might relate to you in certain ways. One point in part two that I'd like to bring up. You are correct that Mace's reaction to smoking pot is inaccurate. The mace that's depicting this issue looks like he's strung out on heroin and not maxing and relaxing like he should be. Then again, the pot is... <laughs> sorry. But then again, the pot is from Baltimore, and that would probably be very different than the BC, but... And I'll take your word for it, Scott. Thanks again, Scott. Thank you, Scott, for writing in. Some really good points there on the Guy Gardner issues. I'm glad you're enjoying those. I'm glad you're reading along. In our next email from Scott, titled Trinity, he says, Hi, Sean. I just finished reading the eight-issue Trinity story arc and listened to your two podcasts devoted to all the issues. It was a lengthy battle, and overall, I really enjoyed the story arc. It was nice to be introduced to the Legion and the Dark Stars, and the way they kept the event compact, quote-unquote, was excellent. I'm getting tired of the epic events that these days span the entire DC universe. Kudos to Gerard Jones, Mark Wade, and Michael Jan Friedman for keeping it together. It was very well done. I have to agree with you again uh, that it wasn't an overarching story, kept contained in these books. Always nice to have, you know, it kept me from having to buy you know, a couple of dozen extra books and just a couple of extra books, so always nice. Continuing on, he says, also, the art was absolutely fantastic. Gene Haw, Barry Kitson, Mitch Bird, et al., really knock it out of the park in each issue. Agreed. And it's some of the early stuff for Mitch Bird, so obviously you're going to be seeing more of Mitch Bird as we go along further into the Guy Gardner stuff. A few specific notes I'd like to bring up, Scott says. In Green Lantern number 45, part 5, it was interesting to see the destruction of Coast City in one of the panels. I always wondered what actually happened in the Green Lantern timeline. Now I've seen it. On page 19, Flicker is back. I was hoping he'd get the chance to get some revenge after being one-punched out in issue 24. And you're right, the reveal that the ships are yellow at the end of issue is pretty weak. In Legion 58, part 6, the death scenes at the end are absolutely brutal, with everyone being fried to death. 
and it continues in the Dark Stars 12, Part 7, when they show some Malthusians being crushed and sentenced by tree trunks. Then maybe they'll save us from... as the story went. Brutal stuff. Finally, the ongoing sex scene between Lobo and Boudica was completely uncalled for. The panel with Lobo wearing Boudica's thong is disgusting. But even worse is the fact that I think it's more important to knock boots for four issues while there's a genocide going on outside their door. Boudica should lose her Green Lantern status for this. I guess getting slammed by Lobo is worth more than a few hundred thousand dollars. Thanks, John. Scott. Good points there, Scott. Again, uh, I am frequently trying to get the uh, image of Lobo and Boudica's thong out of my mind and I'm sad now that after I read your email, it's it's back again. Alcohol will be my friend after this podcast. But finally, to wrap up the trinity, see what I did there, of emails from Mr. Scott Davis, we get one entitled Zero Hour. Anyway, Sean, I remember in one of your podcasts, you mentioned that one of your podcast colleagues did a good review of the Zero Hour, I'm sorry, Zero Hour issues, zero through four, but I can't remember who it was. Could you please let me know? I picked up the issues and I'm going to read them for the first time soon. Thanks, Scott. Well, Scott, I mentioned this to you uh, in the email, but I'll go ahead and mention to anyone who's listening right now. Well, hopefully there's some people listening right now. The, the episodes that I was talking about were some episodes of Views from the Long Box, where it was uh, it was Michael Bailey and I think it was I think it was the Irredeemable Shag, yeah, who uh, covered the... Uh, not Underworld Unleashed, but the Zero Hour storyline. Shag wasn't too keen on it, but uh, overall, they did a pretty good job reviewing it. And anytime Shag's on a podcast, it's always fun. So uh, if you're wanting to know more about Zero Hour, definitely go check out back issues of Views from the Longbox. Our next email comes from the Jet Jaguar or Jet Jaguar of podcasting himself, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Uh, Sorry, Luke, I can't come up with anything clever like Andy and Michael do, but they're far cleverer podcasters than I am. Luke has a really quick email titled Guy Gardner to Star in the Red Lanterns, and basically the email is essentially a link to the Newsarama article that says that Guy Gardner is going to star in the Red Lanterns, and his question in the email is, what do you think? Well, I responded to Luke, and I said, with the... Guy turning Red Lantern in the uh, issue of Green Lantern Corps that happened during uh, Blackest Night, I thought that was kind of a, well, kind of a hokey reason for him to become a Red Lantern. If you didn't know what basically happened is during Blackest Night, Kyle died. Of course, it was only for a book, which made his sacrifice kind of, kind of weak. But the whole thing was essentially a reason to get Guy Gardner to go off half-cocked and become a Red Lantern and start spewing blood or red bile or whatever the heck it is that the Red Lanterns do. I guess some people think that it's an interesting character trait, that Guy is a person who's filled with rage. I can kind of see that. It's not my... It's not exactly how I feel about the character. But it could be an interesting story arc in it, and maybe he could bring a bit more personality to the Red Lanterns. That's one of the things I think has been criticized about the uh, books. Unfortunately, I I haven't been reading, and I don't know even with Guy Gardner the Red Lantern books that I'd begin reading. However, uh, with the addition of Nort to the uh, 
end of the Jeff Johns run in Green Lantern number 20, I, I might just have to go pick that up, despite the fact that it's eight freaking dollars. Wow. Our next email comes from podcaster extraordinaire Tom Panarese, host of Taking Flight, a Nightwing and Robin podcast, and also host of Pop Culture Affidavit, which is a blog and also a podcast as well, where he covers, well, pretty much anything that he thinks is cool and nerdy. It's a great show. Definitely go check it out and definitely go listen to Taking Flight. Uh, there's been a little delay in issues coming out, but I think he's probably working on something cool, so... Pop Culture Affidavit, and Taking Flight. Excellent podcast to go listen to. But Tom writes in the title, Guy Gardner number 29 and 90s Titans. He writes in, Sean, I am, after months of being behind and listening to two, sometimes three episodes a week, jeez, talk about glutton for punishment, finally caught up on Just One of the Guys. Well, thank you for catching, thank you for putting in all that effort for uh, catching up. That's, uh, that's obviously a strain on your ears, and uh, I appreciate you uh, doing that. That's completely awesome, Tom. Uh, he continues, every episode has been absolutely great. Oh, pff, okay. Now I know you're just BSing me. And my only regret is that now I'm going to have to wait for a new episode each week instead of being 10 episodes behind. Well, that that really warms my heart. Uh, you know, I love hearing that people actually enjoy listening to the show. Thank, thank you so much, Tom. I, I'm I'm choked up now, feeling a bit verklempt. Anyhow, uh, I'll get on with the email. He says, I wanted to write in about some of the comics you've recently covered, mainly Guy Gardner number 29, as well as Thomas DJ's comments on the new look post-Zero Hour New Titans. I never was a huge Guy Gardner fan. No problem. There, we're few and far between. And with the exception of the occasional issue, rarely read his book. But listening to you and Thomas talk about issue 29 made me head for the back issue bins when I was at my local comic book shop today, and I managed to find a copy. It was a great read with amazing art. Then again, I'd expect nothing less from Phil Jimenez, and I may start hunting down the rest of the series, at least the Bo Smith's run. I agree, Bo Smith's stuff is great. The first few issues, where he's coming after the Chuck Dixon run and setting up the character are good but when he gets the uh, Naba jungle part it is phenomenal and up then through zero hour and then up to issue 29 just really fun excellent comics in my opinion uh, getting back to the email uh, Tom says now the 90s titans Tom has had some well I don't know if they are harsh words so much as moaning and wailing in pain when it comes to these comments about this era of the titans I was all ready to email in and argue that these issues weren't that bad, as I've been a Titans fan ever since I started reading the book in 1990. But as I began to cover the post-Zero Hour New Titans for my own blog and podcast, I couldn't argue with Thomas except to say that, well, the art wasn't too bad, that the color scheme on Arsenal's new uniform is better than the purple and blue that he'd been wearing prior to that. I have nothing beyond that. That's sad to hear, Tom. He is right, though, he continues. The last year and a half of New Titans with Arsenal leading the team had very little or no connection to what we knew as the Titans was even at best and terrible at worst, and it's no wonder the title was canceled rather quickly. And what they did to the Titans is nice compared to the systematic dismantling of everything that was good going on in over at the Deathstroke title. Thomas is right. 
A lot of this era is a mess, although it's not as unreadable as some of the storylines from the Devin Grayson J. Ferber, the Titan series from the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, um, Thomas has really nothing good to say about the Devin Grayson issues. In fact, he basically says the only reason Devin Grayson got a job doing Titans was because she showed her... Well, his words were that she showed her to one of the editors. His words, not mine. Finally, Tom says, but you're dodging a bullet by not covering the title. Although there is that multi-title crossover called the Siege of C. Sharam that you kind of have to read, and, or at least skim so you can at least follow what goes on in Greenlander number 65. And to be honest, it's a pretty bad storyline. Well, if you're listening to episodes concurrently, you know that I basically said, nope, I'm not going after hunting down all the rest of those books. And In fact, the uh, issue that Greenlander started in, what, number 66, uh, pretty much stood on its own, so... I didn't have a problem with it. Or maybe it was 65. I think it was 65, yeah. He even said that in email. Why don't I read these things? But uh, Tom finishes up saying, Keep up the great work. I can't wait for future episodes. All the best, Tom. Tom, thanks again for writing in. I really appreciate it. I appreciate everyone who... Uh, I'm getting redundant here. Go listen to Pop Culture Affidavit. Go check out Tom's blog at popcultureaffidavit.com. I think it might be popcultureaffidavit.blogspot.com. Just Google it. Google fixes everything. And, of course, go listen to Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast. Excellent stuff. And rounding out the email bag this time around, I've got one from my very good friend, Mr. Thomas DJ, host of Better in the Dark, DJ Comics Cavalcade, as well as the host or the purveyor of the website Damn Your Eyes, Damn Your Ears, and the soon-to-be published author, well, he is a published author, but soon be author of Shadow Legion, New Roads to Hell. Check it out in, well, I'm certain they'll be at Amazon.com. But go check out his websites. They'll give you more information about that. Uh, Thomas DJ writes in saying, with the uh, title being Lee Van Cleef and I See What You Did There. He writes in saying, hey, Sean, I just listened to the last episode of Just One of the Guys, and I think you hit on why I never resented Kyle for having nookie time with Donna Troy. Namely, that Ron Mars makes the relationship develop naturally. Yeah, there was a whiff of double rebound, what with Alex re Alex's recent death and the divorce headaches of Donna's, but Mars didn't rush this thing and let the interaction between the two occur organically. Granted, the severing of said relationship sucked big ol' hairy dead donkey balls. Very dramatic reading that, yes. Given his abruptness, but hey, maybe there's a podcast I can write about that on. Hmm... I wonder if I could get Thomas to come on this podcast and talk about it. Never know. But the brief time that they were together seemed right to me. And yes, you're right. In my younger days, I thought about being under Donna Troy a few times. And given how I think of her now looking like Catherine McPhee, well, it's complicated. Oh, and as to the situation regarding muggers in Central Park after dark... Keep in mind this issue took place during the reign of King Rudy, whose quote-unquote I only care about Manhattan Island, fuck your other four boroughs attitude, led him to authorizing police vans to patrol Manhattan for homeless people to pick up and drop off in Queens and Brooklyn, among other things. Ouch. Rudy really, well, sanitized Midtown, Midtown Manhattan so that both Times Square and Central Park, once dangerous places at night, were made quote-unquote family-friendly so it is pretty possible that these muggers were an anomaly in the park at this time. 
I'll take your word on it. Uh, anytime that I have a reference to New York City, it's always good to fall back on a person who actually knows the area and lives there, Mr. Thomas DJ. Thomas concludes saying, See you at Warriors, Tom. Thanks again, Tom, and I have to take you up on that offer about uh, talking about Kyle and Donna's breakup. That can be an interesting discussion. But that's going to finish it for emails this time out. Again, thanks everyone for writing in. I know there's a few more emails to get to, and I'll try and get those in future episodes. But right now, I want to get on to my coverage of Green Lantern number 69. 69, dudes! Yeah, that joke never gets old. Wait, what am I saying? That joke is incredibly old. I apologize. That's twice in the show I've used it. Anyhow, Green Lantern number 69 was cover dated December 1995 and released on October 17, 1995. The cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. Again, this time out, no UK price, so maybe they weren't being shipped to the uh, United Kingdom. Who knows? Anyway, the title was Bargains, the writer was Ron Mars, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Linda Medley, letterer Albert Guzman, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Tooley. Battered, beaten, and bruised, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner crawls through the window of his apartment, woozily calling for help from his current girlfriend and former Wonder Girl, Donna Troy. Donna rushes to his side and helps the injured hero to the sofa, asking him what in the world happened to him. We're treated to a little bit of Thomas DJ style. As Kyle relates his battle with Neron in the Underworld Unleashed number two, where Neron tempted Kyle with the return of his lost love, Alex. Kyle flatly refused the offer, which didn't set well with the DCU version of Mephisto, and that's how he ended up becoming an emerald-suited punching bag. Kyle tries to stand up to get the word to the other heroes, but Donna tersely tells him to sit down as she, as she searches the apartment for a first aid kit. As Donna searches for band-aids, Kyle ruminates on what just happened. Thinking about Ganthet's doubts of Kyle being worthy to wield the ring, Kyle says that if he truly wasn't the right person, he would have surely taken Neron's offer. And maybe now he should stop doubting himself as Green Lantern. Surprisingly, Donna returns with cotton balls and antiseptic and begins to clean up Kyle's cuts and bruises. She tells Kyle that with all that was going on, the Titans needed him, and she was sent out to find him. Cleaned up but still weak, Kyle rises and tells Donna to get into her Darkstar uniform, as it's time that they go notify the Titans and take down Nero. Cut to a couple of NYC beat cops patrolling the litter-strewn streets. The two comment about strange goings-on when they see an odd light show coming from the nearby alley. The two go to investigate and discover that the homeless wino is actually the shirtless former amputee, Paul Christian slash Purgatory. Philip screams at the cops, telling him to go away, then wonders how he ever got like this. On cue, Neron arrives to explain that this was exactly what he wanted, but just with the added requirement that Paul would have to kill Green Lantern for him. Paul again refuses, telling Neuron to take the power back, which angers the demonic Desperado and causes him to threaten Paul with suffering the likes he could not possibly imagine. As the underworld overlord departs, Paul drops to his knees, as he knows what he has to do. Back at Kyle's apartment, Kyle is trying his hand at some ring constructs to see if he's recovered enough from the fight. Don enters the room in her Darkstar uniform, and before the duo can head out to tackle the Neuron problem, Purgatory blast into the apartment saying that he must kill Green Lantern. 
Kao has Donna evacuate the building while he takes on the baddie, which results in the Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved for the book. GL and Purgatory do all kinds of smashing up the place while Donna evacuates the unique denizens of Kyle's apartment building. In the end, Kyle defeats Purgatory by overloading his power with a blast of additional energy from his own power battery. The excess energy frees Paul from his warped state, but because the bargain was broken, Paul is transported away in a flash of eerie green light. Crisis, as well as Kyle's eyes from just-out-of-the-shower apartment made to Allison averted, Kyle speeds off to meet with the one group that can take on this otherworldly attack, the Justice League. Again, we get more great work from Pelletier on the art and Mars on the story in this book. Uh, this one ties in a bit more heavily with the under the whole Underworld Unleashed thing. But again, you don't have to be reading all of Underworld Unleashed to be getting what's going on in the book. It's nice if you know, but there's enough backstory put into the book that you can kind of figure out what's going on. There's obviously some villain who's tempting people and... That's basically the gist of Underworld Unleashed. Plus, one of the really neat things, at least one of the really neat things for me, is that we finally get an idea of who else is living in Kyle's apartment building. Of course, we get Allison, the super hot model, but we get the couple that I talked about and some other folks that I'll go uh, through as I get through my uh, notes for the issue, which will start out, of course, with the cover of the issue, which is the typical grain of the Underworld Unleashed storyline, but at least there's no weird floaty faces in the background, especially like the floaty face of Neron. One of the neat things about this cover is, that I kind of enjoy myself, is the idea that uh, underneath uh, Donna's costume, she's not wearing much of anything, as you can tell on the uh, front cover that uh, her costume is torn in certain areas of her uh, backside that don't seem to have any underpants on there. So Donna goes commando in her Dark Star uniform, which makes me happy. Very, very happy. Then in the book on page one, we get a little cheesecake shot for the ladies as Kyle enters the way. Oh, wait, it's not really a good cheesecake shot, even though Kyle is showing off a bit of skin. He's kind of beaten and cut up. So, ooh, maybe... Maybe the wrong thing. But we do get some man boobies, so there you go, ladies. Yeah. Beating up Kyle Rayner man boobies. Nice. Moving on to page two, panel three. Uh, one of the really great character traits that I like about Kyle is his ability to joke during pressure situations. And here we've got uh, Donna running over to him and saying, let me get you out of that costume. And he replies, I thought you'd never ask. 
but I've got to warn you, I'm probably not in peak form right at this minute. So he's got the sort of Spider-Man quippage thing going on, but it's uniquely his own. And I really enjoy that character trait in this character. Mars does a good job of delineating delineating his character from the other Green Lanterns. And it's a nice way to give him a sort of personality that's different from what we've seen with Hal Jordan or even John Stewart and Guy Gardner. Pages three and four, we get really good economy of storytelling as the events of Underworld Unleashed number two are recounted here, including the uh, battle with Neron and Neron's offering of the temptation of bringing Alex back, replete with the unfortunate refrigerator scene. So can't get away from that as well. And plus, uh, Neron says on page four that he was looking for a pure soul to find. And Kyle tends to believe that that soul is Superman. Now, if you listen to the coverage that uh, Michael Bailey and Thomas DJ did over at Views from the Longbox on Underworld Unleashed, they will mention that Superman really was nowhere to be seen in the Underworld Unleashed storyline because in his own book, he was off-planet or in this trial of Superman storyline, I believe. So it ended up that the actual soul that Neron was looking for was the soul of Captain Marvel, and that sort of led to the entire undoing of the Underworld Unleashed storyline. But it was a good read. I, I definitely recommend you go check it out. But it's nice to have that bit of the storyline encapsulated here for people who aren't reading the book. Page 5, panel 2. I like Pelletier's art here, especially his artwork with Donna. She's very... She's got that sort of anime style that Cully Hamner did, but it's a little less anime. It's still very... You want to say cutesy? It's not the sort of vampy, 90s, uh, Jim Lee type style that we'd get, but she looks very realistic, even though she looks, you know, drawn as a features a character in a comic book so it's a nice sort of uh balance between the comic book form that we'd get with like cully hamner and the anime type stuff and the really ultra realism of the stuff that we'd get in the 90s types comics where well i guess that's be hyper realism because the women in 90s comics were far too perfect to be actual women in the world Plus, on the same page, he's also to take he's also able to take that style and show Kyle being really bruised and beaten up. I mean, over here we see the cut on his on in this fourth panel we see the cut on his head, sort of bleeding down into his eyes and his nose, and he's got a huge bruise on the side of his face. It's it looks like he's taken a pretty bad beating, and and uh, Pelletier here does a good job at representing that in his artwork. Page 6, panel 3, and moving on to storytelling. With Mars, we finally get to the point where Kyle is getting the idea is he's personally good enough to wield the ring. Uh, we've had a lot of issues up to this, uh, showing the egotism, his learning how to use the ring, and his self-doubt. And now, finally, Mars is putting forth the idea that it's time for Kyle to actually become a true hero in the DC Universe. And I like that this uh, Underworld Unleashed is sort of the impetus for getting him to uh, examine his uh, idea of being a hero and actually get over the sort of initial fears and uh, trepidation that he had. He's finally 
cementing himself as Green Lantern. And I think uh, both Underworld and Unleashed and the initial fight with Hal Jordan a couple of issues back is finally doing what uh, needs needs to have been done for a long time and setting up Kyle as the actual Green Lantern in the DC Universe. Page 7, panel 5. I always like it when we get the sort of determined look of the hero. And this is a really great page, or a really great panel on this page where Kyle has ringed up his costume and he's got his teeth gritting and he's flexing and everything and his dialogue is then we're all going to shut down Daron. And it it really looks like Kyle is determined. It's a, it's a good heroic image for the page. It It's typical of comic books where the hero realizes what he has to do. And this is just good artwork here, especially with the sort of green radiating off his body. Nice look. Page 8. This interaction kind of confused me because I assuming that these two police officer characters are supposed to be characters that I should know, possibly from some other form of the media, maybe like Car 54, Where Are You, or Adam 12, or some show like that, but for the life of me, I can't determine who they are. I mean, I guess you could just say they're two stereotypical NYC beat cops, one being a little bit pudgier, and one being a sort of taller, more serious one, and I guess that's just sort of an archetype of New York City police cops, but, police cops, street cops, but uh, they do look a bit on model, so I'm wondering if they might have been an actual reference to certain characters in another medium. Pages 10 through 11, as uh, Paul, or now Purgatory, is reeling with the idea that he made the bad decision. It just goes to show this is why you never make deals with odd beings that show up unexpected at your home, even if they do promise to save the life of your husband's aunt in exchange for wiping out your marriage. Oh, wait, that didn't happen there. That was the other book. I'm sorry. My bad. Page 12, panel 1, as Donna is going to change into her Dark Star uniform, we get Kyle doing a little construct, and we also get a little foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the next issue or so. It's going to be a bit of a problem. You see, the construct is a mini-construct of a figure, very attractive figure, in a bikini in a very suggested pose. The character is Allison, the uh, person that Kyle met in the apartment, who's the model who will be the cause of some problems in an issue or so. But... We'll get to that here, obviously in a week. Of course, this leads us to the big fight sequence for the book, which really I'm not going to cover all that much. I just wanted to point out, like on page 15, panel 4, we get Kyle using the old tried and true punch the enemy with a giant fist gag, which I guess they said they were going to get away from because, oh, that's Hal Jordan using the, the scissor constructs and the big green fist thing, so... That's all uh, hokey. We're going to have our Green Lantern do something new. But uh, this time he does do something new, as the uh, fist that punches Purgatory looks kind of like uh, what well, looks kind of like the Thing's hand. It's all sort of rocky and it's got that sort of uh, different texture layer thing. So I guess they can get away with it since it's not technically the same as the kind of stuff that Hal would do. 
page 16, I know I mentioned a few episodes back that there was a lesbian character in the book, and initially I thought it was going to be Allison, the uh, model that Kyle met in Radu's coffee shop. Now, actually, it's the two ladies that Donna evacuates from the apartment on this page. And the thing is, to Mars and Pelletier's credit, they aren't drawn or written as horrible stereotypes. In fact, uh, you know, initially when I read this book uh, back in college, I don't think I even picked up on the fact that they were a couple. So now that I'm a bit older and I know that they're supposed to be here, I can actually see that, yes, it's they're pretty much the stereotypical lesbians. But it's not... Uh, I guess it's not overt, and it's not uh, in your face, and it's not, well, it's not demeaning to the characters. It's just put in there as this is part of life, which is what I really enjoy about uh, comic books that can do this. It's not having to make a statement. It's not having to force it down your throat. It's just there, just part of the book. So, again, credit to Mars and Pelletier for bringing these characters in and bringing them in a way that doesn't make me want to punch someone. Then, of course, on page 17, we get Donna meeting with the rest of the denizens of uh, Kyle's apartment. And the first one is sort of a older, kind of uh, chubby black man who happens to be blind. So sort of a Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder type character. Then we've got the very stip- stereotypical sort of old, white-haired, uh, sort of... I hate to make the comment, but sort of hippies lady. She's in a uh, sort of like fringy vest, and she's got the sort of librarian-type glasses. She's uh, she's kind of like one of those, I would think, New York intellectual types. And then finally on the page, we get the stereotypical New York City, well, I guess NYU film student who's worried about his editing of his film and that the uh, uh, trouble in the apartment is going to stop him from doing that. So he's, I guess, sort of a Spike Lee type character who his first thing to get is not his film or anything, but his standalone of uh, Charlie Chaplin. So quirky characters in the comic. I'm, I'm enjoying them and we'll probably get to meet more of them throughout the run. Of course, the last person to evacuate the building is Allison, the smoking hot model. And, of course, she just happened to have come out of the shower and is dripping wet in a towel and nothing else. Yep, it had to be that way, didn't it? Page 19, we get Kyle overloading Purgatory with energy from his battery. It seems kind of suspect, but I'm going to just knock it up to comic book science and give it a pass this time. I don't know how it would actually work, but yeah, I guess it works here. Why not? Go with it. Then moving on to page 20. Yeah, this all really didn't turn out too well for Paul. But with any luck, he'll probably actually be going to purgatory. You, you can't see it, but I, I just took my sunglasses off. Trust me, yeah, I did. Page 21, as Kyle has rescued everyone from the building and is ringing up some constructs to uh, put out the fire, we notice that Kyle is a 
bit too distracted by Allison and her towel and all wet and stuff. But honestly, as a male, um, I've got to say that if I saw a female standing out there in a towel and nothing else, I'd probably be looking a bit as well. But of course, this doesn't set well with Donna, obviously. Finally, on page 22, we get uh, Kyle heading up to the, I guess, the Watchtower, whatever it is, and meeting with the Justice League. And by God, this is a more interesting version of the Justice League than what we saw in those JLA issues in episodes 63 and 64. Plus, it doesn't hurt that it's got Guy Gardner there, because that always makes it awesome. But speaking of Guy Gardner, well... First of all, let me say that this wraps up my uh, notes for this issue. But again, speaking of Guy Gardner, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we'll go ahead and look into our coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 38. So stay tuned after the break. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger, smarter, greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weeder, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash. An Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. And per usual, we are back. Well, I'm back. Hopefully, you're back as well. But we're going to... Why do I keep using we? I'm going to take a look at the issue of Guy Gardner Warrior number 38. It was cover dated January 1996, released on November 7th, 1995. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World for the information about that. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. Again, no UK price, so maybe these weren't being marketed over in the UK. Title was Seduction of the Not-So-Innocent. Story was by Bo Romeo Smith. Pencils were by Mark Casanova Campos and Tom El Guapo Grindberg. Inks were Dan Don Juan Davis. Colors Lee Loverboy Lowridge. Letters Albert Lady Killer de Guzman. Cover by Marty Loveman Levum Egeland. Cover colors by Scott Bowman. He doesn't get a cute thing between his name. And edits by Eddie Bluebeard Braganza. Okay. Overseeing repairs to the Warriors Bar, Buck Wargo, Joey Hong, and Rita Muldoon discuss Guy's absence, Aresia's amazing recovery, and Desmond and Verona's tracking of Earthworm, who trashed the place a mere two issues ago. 
the trio marvel over Orisi's ability to not only wear the most egregious outfit ever, but also to come back from a beatdown after beatdown. When who should walk in the front door all Charlton Heston from Planet of the Apes, but our very own Guy Gardner. Exhausted from his trip, Guy falls to the floor at Buck as Buck, Rita, and Joey rush him to the infirmary. Meanwhile, in the sewers of Manhattan, Tiger Man, Verona, and Hooker Jim, oh wait, no, that's Aresia, are trailing the underworld on handsome earthworm. Verona senses Guy's return, somehow, and Aresia asks how she knows. Verona says she can feel it in her gut, or maybe it's the organs a little lower than her gut, and comments that her knowledge of Guy's presence is just about as weird as Aresia's healing powers. Turning a corner, Desmond tells the two chatty Cathy's to hush, as he thinks that he's found the Earthworm's lair. Sure enough, the albino anarchist is holding hostages from the warrior's bar and preparing to feed them to his alligator pets. But our trio of heroes has other plans as they engage the Earthworm with a heaping ghost of Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Back at the warrior's sick bay, Buck is doing his best Dr. McCoy on Guy as the injured Wildcat, Lead, and Lady Blackhawk look on. A few scans later, and Buck determines that Guy's Voltarian DNA has developed a series of glands in his body that allow him to morph. And his recent travels have all but used up all the delicious, delicious gland juice. Buck asks Guy to try morphing something, and when he can't, Buck suggests a good dose of R&R to fix his super problems. Heading back to the fight with Earthworm, we see Aresi and Verona violently putting down some of the sewer gators, when suddenly Verona is grabbed by the claws of one of Earthward's mad mutations. But before the nubile Naba tribe's woman can become a midday snack, Desmond super tigers out and leaps up at the creepy crocodile. After a quick cut to the lucky fe- to a lucky female in a limo who is looking for Mr. Good Guy, we've come back to see the giant black tiger man shredding in the freakish monster as the earthworm plunges for the escaped Verona. But before he can harm her, Aritzia hits him with a cryoblast from her gun, freezing the middle of solid. Crisis averted, the ladies marvel at how rugged and manly Desmond was, as he explains that channeling all the powers of his race of Tiger Man is pretty exhausting. But he's still got enough stamina for some playtime with Aritzia. Wink. Verona puts a stop to all the flirtations as they take the frozen earthworm to the authorities and head back to the warrior's bar. Back in, said Bar, Buck and Joey are discussing Guy's prognosis. Guy gives some techno-babble about how the new gland has fused with Guy's nervous system and how it can create organic plasma when Guy walks in on the conversation. Buck asks how Guy is feeling after so little rest, to which Guy replies that he's better, but not up to 100%. After a quick jibe that the new gland might have even left him pregnant, Rita steps in to give Guy a shave and a haircut. Before going the bones clippers, Guy emerges the barber's chair with his traditional warrior dude, which catches the eye of the super hot babe, Martika, who for some reason has the warm fuzzies for our ginger hero. A bottle of champagne later, Guy is whisked off to parts unknown in Martika's limo, as a gobsmacked Joey, Buck, and Rita look on, wondering what the heck just happened. Now, with the return of Bo Smith to the book after his sort of one-issue reprieve, 
and Mark Campos getting a better feel for the characters, the book has really gotten over its slump that it had a few issues ago. The artwork is, yes, still very much set in the 90s, but it's a lot crisper than the art that they were getting in the Way of the Warrior storyline. Plus, the defeat of both Dementor and the Tormox means that we're getting set up for the next couple of villains in the book, including this character, Martika. <sighs> Unfortunately, we're also coming to the premature end of the book in a few issues' time, which means the Martika storyline probably won't be played out as much as I'd like it to be. It saddens me, but it's the setup. You can see the setup that Bo Smith was wanting to do for the run, and I don't know exactly when it got the cancellation notice, but I know it's not very far from now, which is highly upsetting. But this is an awesome issue. Let's just go ahead and take a look at some of the notes that I have for it right now. We'll go ahead and start with the cover. And looking at this cover, I noticed two amazing things on this cover. Two things that I just can't stop staring at. Two things that just completely and totally entice me. It's the Buck Borgo and Guy Gardner Warrior action figures. Those things I would love to... Oh, wait, I guess there's the boobies there, too. Yeah, that, that would do it as well. Page one, we get a nice bunch of writing uh, by Bo Smith to get the readers caught up to what's been going on in the story. We get uh, notes about what's happened to Guy, what's happened to Aresia, the same thing about uh, Lady Blackhawk and Lead and everything that went on a couple of issues ago in the Underworld Unleashed storyline. So, again, a testament to Bo Smith that he can compile essentially a couple of months worth of uh, storylines into one page and get you up and running for the rest of the story coming up. So again, testament to Bo Smith. Then moving to page two, the artwork's looking a lot better on here, except for the fact that when Guy comes into the bar and falls down, first off, he's in his gigantic hulked out Guy Gardner warrior with all the tattoos thing. And as he morphs down to size, not only does he grow the, uh, orange beard and orange hair, very ginger. He also grows a uh, torn-up warrior's t-shirt, which doesn't really make sense, but we'll just go with it. Maybe he had morphed the t-shirt into his body or something. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. And speaking about things that I really didn't want to think about, uh, page four, Aresia, hooker jam outfit, She's still got it. I mean, she looks really cool in, uh, there was an issue a couple of months ago where she was in just a Warriors t-shirt and some shorts, and it was, uh, it was very much a Hooters-type look, but it wasn't as goofy as this. I don't know why she has to dress up like this. This will be a bone of contention for me for I don't know how long. Probably the rest of the Guy Gardner series. Then on page 5, panels 4 four through 6, we get Aresia and Verona talking about going after Earthworm. And Ar Verona is all, we have to take care of him, we have to kill him, he's evil, he's an abomination, he deserves to die. And Aresia is all like, wait, you're thinking about killing him? When did uh, morality about killing people become such a big issue in the Guy Gardner book, uh? Guy's killed bunches of people over the past few issues, so 
I guess maybe Arisi is just here to play sort of the nicer, more compassionate side. I'll give it to her. Maybe it's just some for ex-Green Lantern training shining through. Moving on to page eight. Uh, like I said, again, it's nice to see the characters from a few issues ago. We've got Lady Blackhawk, uh, Ted Grant, Wildcat, and Lead here uh, recovering from their injuries that they had in the bout with uh, Earthworm and Cheetah and <sighs> Blackguard. But the neat thing is that underneath Warrior's Bar, essentially, Buck Wargo had designed the sick bay of the Enterprise, including the little floaty pull-out beds and... Well, luckily, none of the lens flares, so that's always a bonus. Then on page 9, panel 3, we get Buck telling Guy to try and morph his arm into something, and you see Guy straining and his arm all just tended out. It's it's a very 90s image, but unfortunately, the look on Guy's face looks like he might not be trying to morph his arm more than pass something out of his body. I'll let you and your imagination fill in the rest. And then again on page 10, panels 2 and 3, hearkening back to the idea that this is a 90s comic, Aurisia fires gigantic guns with DNA-seeking bullets that fire backwards to attack the target behind her or some such nonsense. It's neat in a comic, it really is kind of cool, and it leads to a nice visual, but completely and wholly implausible. But since we're allowing Aresia's costume to go along, I guess DNA tracking bullets are perfectly fine. However, some of the artwork is kind of cool, especially here on page 12, the first panel. Get a look at this giant mutated crocodile that's one of the pets or guards or minions or whatever of, of Earthworm. And it's really creepy looking. It's got the general alligator body, but it's just enormously huge. And instead of the eyes where they would be on top of the head, it looks like he's got sort of eye stalks growing out of his head. And it's just a sort of creepy, eerie design. And again, very over-the-top 90s, but enjoyable as well. And speaking of over-the-top 90s, how do I know it's a 90s comic? Yep, on page 13, we've got a giant one-page splash of a giant black tiger man. Not black as in African-American, but black as in black striped with white stripes as well. So I guess a white tiger man with black stripes. He calls it a black tiger man. I'll give it to him. Leaping at the reader and the speed lines and the, of course, the growling. So it's ridiculous. It's over the top. It's overly muscled, but it is so joyously 90s and so enormously fun. Moving on to page 14, panels 1 through 3, we get a sort of strange interlude with the, one of these stretch limos and the very leggy person, I'm assuming it's female, driving up. And uh, for some reason, the person has an interest in Guy Gardner, but also it seems that the person has sort of a sway held over the driver. Uh, it seems like the driver may be hypnotized at some level, but... Uh, we get an introduction of a character that we have no idea what's going on with. And it's kind of feels kind of tacked in right here, especially right in the middle of this fight scene. But I don't know where else they could have put it. So 
I guess it works, but it's the introduction of a character that will be a villain to Guy Gardner here in the next few issues. Next page, I guess we get the payoff for Aresia's I don't want to kill statement earlier in the book with Aresia locking and loading again with her giant gun, and it happens to fire cryoblasts. Again, much like DNA bullets, what the heck are they? But it essentially freezes Earthworm and allows them to take him hostage rather than kill him, so good on you, Aresia. You're, you're doing justice, just not Guy Gardner justice. Page 16, we get uh, Desmond or Tigerman going to town on the big mutant alligator just slicing through him. And very 90s artist, he's ripping, oh, it looks like he ripped the skull or the eye sockets out of him there. And then, of course, at the bottom panel, he's atop the dead dinosaur alligator thing, just growling as loud as he can, his arms stretched out, stretched out in kind of a primal scream type thing. And, of course, Verona's... Uh, pretty impressed with it. In fact, I bet she's hoping to get a little bit of the talky-tawny, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, of course you do. Moving on to page 18, we get more techno-babble to say white guy can shoot knives and plasma and whatnot, saying something that his gland creates some sort of DNA that can be formed into plasma, that can be formed into weapons and whatever. It's all Star Trek-level techno-babble, like I said, that fits the stories that tries to explain why a person can shoot guns out of his hand or grow guns out of his hand. And then finally on this page, we also get the fact that, well, yeah, Buck pulls a line that Guy might actually be pregnant, which of course in no way is true. However, eventually Guy will be a girl as well, so that does come true. Page 19, however, this one's for you, Dave Walker, it's pretty much a full panel of Guy getting his hair cut. So, yes, essentially it wasn't a two-page splash like I mentioned, but there is a splash page of Guy Gardner essentially getting his hair cut. And he gets a variety of different styles. He's got a style that looks kind of Brad Pitt with the long, slicked-back hair and beard. Then he's got a sort of sting look. Then he's got one that looks like his brother Mace with a porn stash. Then an Elvis-type look, and finally it ends up being the typical Guy Gardner spiky hair. So, there you go. Guy Gardner getting his hair cut. Page 20, the artwork gets a little wonky. I don't know if it's because Grindberg was the inker for these pages or not, but the face of Joey Hong in this panel looks very stereotypically Asian, and not in a pleasant fashion. It does look kind of... He's got sort of the slanty eyes... And his mouth is just wide open, so he's got this sort of weird gobsmacked look. And I understand it's because on the, the next panel, we see the character of Martika walking in with uh, clothing that really doesn't leave much for the imagination. But the artwork just takes a little bit of a downturn here. It's not quite as good as it was in the rest of the issue. However, I do find it rather odd that on the same page, panel 4... It looks like Guy is striking a Robert Pattinson pose in this panel. Looks very much like Pattinson from Twilight. You know, one of his over-the-shoulder, sh- over sideways-looking glances, you know, puffing out his chest, look macho. Ugh. I don't know what's more disturbing, that I saw this in the book or 
that I know what a Robert Pattinson pose is like. <sighs> Turn in my man card. Then on page 21, well, actually in pages 20 and 21, we get the idea, like I said before, that Martika is somehow mentally manipulating everyone. And it's really apparent on this last panel where Buck goes, what a woman, and Joey goes, what a babe, and Rita goes, what happened? It seems that Rita might just be immune to the charms that Martika has. Of course, unless those charms happen to be her boobies, then I actually expect her to be immune from them. But that does it for my notes for the issue. I'll go ahead and say that it was an enjoyable one. It looks like it's setting up a new villain for the uh, issues. Like I said, unfortunately, I don't know how long this is going to last or how in-depth we're going to get into the character, but we'll have to see. But let's go ahead and take a look at some of the ads they've got in this 90s comic and see what kind of uh, new things are going on. You might be surprised. On the front and side cover, we get an ad for the WWF WrestleMania the Arcade game, which I guess is a port of, of course, the WWF WrestleMania Arcade game. The interesting thing is, it's not only for the Super NES and the Genesis, but it's also for the 32X, which is a sort of an expansion for the Genesis, which you popped into the top of it, and you could play, quote-unquote, 32-bit games instead of 16-bit games. So that was kind of neat. I had that. It The graphics were a bit cooler, and I believe one of the big games they had on it was Doom, which uh, was really fun play it on the uh, old Genesis. But one of the neat things here is it's actually got ads for the PC CD-ROM version, which isn't that interesting, but also the PlayStation version. So this is the first time I've seen in the comics advertisements for the brand new Sony PlayStation system. So that's kind of neat. We're getting to the advent of the next-gen games, and it only seems like the Super NES and the Genesis have just been out for a short amount of time. Time flies, I guess. A few more pages in, we get a huge lightning bolt flies from his hands and hits you square in the chest. Shocked, you thrash your limbs like a seared pig until the bolt passes through you and into the ground. You stand, amazed to be alive. You heft your battle axe and leap straight at him. Man, he's gonna pay for that. As you get this really nice uh, page of artwork of a sort of skeletal figure who, like a skeletal mage firing a lightning bolt at this, oh, very Viking-looking uh, warrior with a uh, round shield and a battle axe, and it's an advertisement for the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, I guess, player's manual. And uh, TSR is trying to promote uh, new people to get into the Dungeons and Dragons game. And I think I, I, I'm not really certain if this was the advent of second generation rules yet, but uh, the artwork here is really good. It's a nice, dynamic look, and it would actually entice me into playing D&D if, if I wasn't already playing it, so... Good on you, TSR. However, on the next page, we get supposedly this year's hottest game, which is Dragon Dice, which I guess is a die-rolling game that is supposed to relate to Dungeons & Dragons in some way or shape or form. Unfortunately, I uh, never played it, and I don't know how it would relate to Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, yeah, you roll dice in Dungeons & Dragons, but this looks like it's just a dice-rolling game. So... It's by TSR, though, so they must have uh, paid for some good ad space in the books. Next page, you get the uh, model kits from Monogram. You get the uh, Shelby Cobra 
uh, twos, I'm sorry, 427 and the uh, uh, Corvette 427 Roadster models. They look kind of neat, which uh, come with the uh, special limited edition Batman comic. So, kind of neat stuff. I think we covered this in a previous issue, so I won't go too in-depth in it. And the next page has an ad for You've Got the Power. And No, it's not the CNC Music Factory. It's an ad for Honeycomb Cereal. If you save uh, Honey Bucks off the back of Honeycomb Cereal ads, you can get up to $6 to get Sega Pocket Arcade games, which, no, they're not little games for, what was it, the mini Sega handheld system? They're those little LCD games with various buttons. Not as fun as you would think they would be. A few pages in, you get an ad for 2-on-2 Open Ice Challenge. It's a video game, but oddly enough, it's a video game that you can only play in arcades, and it's a uh, hockey video game that basically has the big heads of various hockey players. Uh, They've got Luke Robitaille, Mario Lemieux, uh, I don't know who Nedved is, Uh, I want to say Mark Messier, Uh, but it's basically supposed to be hyper-detailed characters in hockey that's uh, so real that essentially you can see the nose hair on the characters. Why that's a selling point for the video game, I don't know, but there you go. The next page is the subscription page that we mentioned last time with Batman on it, uh, ordering 12 issues and you get the annual free. Uh, Still has Guy Gardner Warrior on there. Unfortunately, if you order now, I don't know if you'd fully get your full 12-year subscription filled, which is, again, saddening. But then, near the end of the book, we get a couple of house ads, one for the Mr. Miracle comic. I guess it's by Kevin Dooley, some guy named, looked the last name of Crespo, and Morace. Never read this one, and never really heard about the Mr. Miracle uh, book posted or around this time, so who knows. But then, of course, we get an ad for Showcase 96, which is something I might have to go seek out because it's got Steel and Guy uh, teaming up in it, and it looks pretty awesome. In fact, I think it might even be written by Bo Smith, so I'll have to check that out, see if I can add that to the uh, reading list. The next page, of course, has an ad for Green Lantern Silver Surfer Unholy Alliances, outracing the destruction of the universe, and this really looks like an interesting thing because it's written by Ron Marks and Daryl Banks and uh, inked by Terry Austin. And it's a big one-shot prestige format. And, hmm, I may have to think about uh, covering this sometime soon. I wonder if anyone would want to cover this book with me. I'll have to check it out. The letters column this time out is uh, separated by like a three-quarter, well, a page and a quarter splash ad of... A game named Vector Man for the Sega Genesis? I have no idea for this. I guess it's trying to play off some of the higher bit graphics or the higher frame rate graphics that the Genesis could do, but yeah, couldn't tell you anything about this game at all. Finally, the back inside cover has more power than ever. It's the Power Chrome Legends 95 cards. And these are Skybox cards, and I guess what they were doing is these were uh, Chromium cover cards, and there's a couple of neat bits of artwork as we've got the Wally West Flash and the uh, Superboy, the not quite yet Connor Kent Superboy. And of course, uh, we've got Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman promoting the cards as well. And these look pretty neat. And uh, again, I wasn't a big trading card person, but I'll give it to him. It's definitely catching on on the sort of zeitgeist of the 90s with the whole chromium premium covers and all that kind of stuff. So kind of neat. 
The outside back cover is, of course, another ad for Levi's jeans, which uh, has the classic 505, the relaxed 550, and the loose 560. And instead of uh, dogs representing what the uh, jeans are like, we've got various different guitars. So match the guitars up to the bagginess of the jeans. Yeah, there you go. But that does it for ads. Sadly, nothing really that interesting except the advent of the PlayStation. So I guess we're going to be getting into uh, PlayStation for a while, and I think it'll be quite a bit longer before we get into Xbox stuff because that didn't really come out until the PlayStation 2 was out. So we've got a while to go with the PlayStation stuff. So it'll be fun taking a look at the evolution of, well, video games throughout all these books. But uh, that does it for this issue. Uh, that does it for this episode. Again, as usual, I'd like to announce that because DC is not up on the ball, that neither of these books have found their way into any sort of reprint. Tragedy. Again, I'm still hoping for a showcase edition of Bo Smith's work, but not on the list yet, so disappointing. But what's not disappointing is going to be next episode, where I'm going to be covering Green Lantern number 70, a sort of pivotal moment in Kyle Rayner's life, as Kyle looks like he's going to have a bit of a breakup with Donna Troy. And in Guy Gardner Warrior, Guy looks like he's going to have a little reunion with a bunch of his friends at the Warriors bar, and maybe someone a little close to his heart. It's an issue that'll probably make you cry. Well, it'll make me cry. But I cry at the opening of supermarkets, so it's not really that surprising. But we might even have a uh, special guest on to help me uh, through my pain. Go ease it and comfort me and then tell me what a wuss I am. So I'm looking forward to that. But you should be looking forward to it as well. Because in seven days, we'll be back here again with another great episode of Just One of Guys. So we'll see you then. Until then, have a good week. We'll catch you later. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Shawnee. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no one. All feedback from the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fight. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting in. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the new world two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Lafayette Awards group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Agreed.
The opening music for today's show was Elvis Presley with You're the Devil in Disguise. This can be found at a myriad number of uh, recordings, but the best one would probably be the Elvis 30 number one hits recording that you can find, oddly enough, at Amazon.com. How would you like to get to Amazon.com? Well, the best way to do it would be to go to the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. Go up to the top of the page at twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon banner on the left side of the page. You'll be directed to Amazon.com where you can search for the Elvis album or you can search for a various number of Elvis movies, some Elvis action figures, or whatever else you want to buy of the king of rock and roll. Plus, Amazon.com gives a little bit of money back whenever you buy something when you click on the banner at 2TrueFreaks.com, and it doesn't cost you a thing. So if you're ever wanting to buy anything from Amazon.com, please be sure to go to 2TrueFreaks.com and use the Amazon banner to get there. <laughs> 